Hey, my name is Pastor Jeremy. Welcome here as we continue to worship. You've probably already picked up today that we're featuring our Go Local ministry. We're excited about all the work that God is doing in Midland and mid-Michigan and around the world. We're not just a local ministry. We're not just an international ministry. We want to be both and neighbors and nations. And so today in particular, we're focusing on the neighbors in a few weeks coming up, we'll be talking about the nations, and it's a really great thing because all together as a team, we're trying to um, be a part of God's mission to make disciples of all nations. Today, we're going to look at the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, I know that as I say that to you, more than likely, it's a very familiar term. I say Good Samaritan, and you think... What'd you say? Veggie tales. Exactly right. There, you got it. Service over. I say good Samaritan and you think something, but no doubt you associate good with Samaritan. You think here is someone who is helpful. Here is a kind neighbor. It's synonymous with doing a good deed. Be a good Samaritan. Help the little elderly person across the street. Be a good Samaritan. Rake your neighbor's leaves. You know, we have these associations with the word good Samaritan. But what I'm going to try to tell you today is to stop. Don't ever associate good with Samaritan. At least if you're reading the Bible correctly. Because in this culture, at this time, these readers would never do that. Instead, their associations would be very different. It would be like if I came to you and I said, good terrorist. Say, what? Huh? Has our pastor gone crazy? Did you sleep last night? What's going on, Pastor Jeremy? Well, here's the thing. I want us to read this text from the lens of the original reader. So I'm going to try to help us get into that. I'm going to jump into a little history. It's not just because we're trying to be nerdy or history buffs. But I want us to understand what's going on here so that we can apply it in our lives as well. And I'll try to go fast through the history, and I'll show you pictures, so it should be cool. But I want to I just warn you, as you hear this term, more than likely you're hearing it incorrectly. You're hearing the word good in Samaritan, and you think that's a natural thing. But these people would think the exact opposite. They never, ever, ever associated the word good with a Samaritan. Now, also know that I'm not making a... Uh, a racial statement one way or another, like you should side with the Jews. Often the Jews were really terrible. Or you should side with the non-Jews. Often they were really terrible. The point is to understand there's a history going into this so that when Jesus flips the script, we see that mirror shining right back on us. So let me tell you just a little bit about what was happening in the reader's mind when this started. And besides that, it also gives me a really cool chance to use my laser pointer pen. Just super fun. All right. By the way, you want to know a funny story? One time I thought it was going to be awesome. I took this thing to a paintball thing in seminary. I've had it that long. I'm like, I'm going to strap this to my paintball barrel. I'm going to be the ultimate. It's going to be great. And I was just getting pelted. What happened after the first? We just aimed and shot at the red light. Oh. That's how my life goes. <laughs> it, it was really cool in my head. Didn't work. All right. 
So let's show you a little bit of history here. This is the UK. And no, Mr. Pollock, this is not the UK that you're thinking of. This is a very different one. This is the United Kingdom of Israel. And it was really only united for a very short time. Only three kings. We three kings, but not those three kings. These three kings, Saul, David, Solomon. These are the only kings that actually ruled in Israel when it was United Kingdom. First is Saul. He's in the purple. And he's really small. David is an expansionist who follows God's heart. And as a result, the kingdom of Israel grows. The biggest was under his son Solomon, who has the red outline right there. And that was the country of Israel, the nation of Israel, at their height. However, Solomon's son was um, not quite godly. And as a result, he, being the spoiled son of a king, decides that he's got to prove himself. And instead of lowering taxes, he raises taxes just to show how big he is. Well, nobody liked that, particularly the people in the north. And that was 10 tribes. And so they split away and the kingdom was divided. As a result, you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. That's the people the Jews are now named after, Judah in the south. So a house divided against itself cannot stand and... Nations around them knew it, and so this is what happened when the Assyrians came to power. They said, aha, here's this little landmass, a bridge between the east and the west. We want to control the trade routes. Let's go in there and clean house. And so they do, and the Assyrians invade, and they take northern Israel. And their way of um, making sure that they stay in power is to uh, sort of, I guess you would call it... uh, or something, I don't know. They would take what they considered the smart, talented, good-looking, whatever people and export them to their capital cities and their important places. And then they would send others in to marry the people that are left and then produce a race that is a mixed race that would no longer have clear allegiances to one side or the other because mom's from one place and dad's from another. So why are we going to fight about it? We won't worry about it. So they they make these people naturally aligned with their interest, and they also sort of dumb it down, if you will. Not to say, you know what I mean, I'm just trying to explain this, all right? So what happens then is Assyria's in power, they've exported all these people they think are awesome, and taken advantage of the people who are left, but then a country comes after them by the name of Babylon, a kingdom more than a country, and they have a different way of doing things they're like well you know what cyrus says i'm gonna let you guys go home and that's ezra and nehemiah and their story they go back and they're going to rebuild the temple but when they get back there there's this mixed race of people who no longer worship yahweh they got all different kinds of gods and stuff like this and so it's not easy to intermingle because what happens is basically the people who are away think that, okay, we're going to stay loyal. We're going to maintain our cultural identity and our religious heritage and our customs and our practices. And they come back and there's these people who have it. And they're like, what are you doing? Sleeping with the Germans? This is not right. We're not going to hang out with you, you traitors, you infidels, you, ugh, yuck. Stay away from us. So they go to rebuild their temple and the Samaritans come along and say, hey, can we help? And they're like, no, we don't want your help. You didn't help when we were deported and you just hung out with the bad guys. We don't want your help. The Samaritans say, fine, 
We don't want your temple. And as a result, they build two separate temples. Here's a picture of that. In Samaria, in the north, there is one hill in which the Samaritan temple was built. And then Judah in the south, there's another hill. Now you can see that in Jerusalem in the south, there's still the remains which have been rebuilt of this temple. But in the north, there's nothing. And the reason is because before Christ, between the Testaments, one of the Jewish kings came and raised to the ground the Samaritan temple. And a few years later, the Samaritans said, we don't really appreciate that. And they come on the day of Passover and scatter bones all over the Jewish temple. And so by the time that Jesus comes along, let's just say they're not exactly the best of friends. They hate each other. And thus, when the woman at the well is interacting with Jesus, she's trying to poke and lean into every racial, you know, antagonistic thing there is. And she's like, you know, you Jews don't talk to us Samaritans. Jesus keeps talking to her. And then she says, oh, you guys worship in Jerusalem. Whoops, it just went away. Let's try that again. All right. You guys worship in Jerusalem and we in a different city. I mean, she's going at him. But the really cool thing about Christ is he can never be trapped. You never trap him. You never trick him. You don't trick him on geography. You don't trick him on what's going inside your heart. You don't trick him on what's going inside your head. And you're certainly not going to trick him in matters of the law and legal justification. Isn't it funny? You watch, you get in your family sometime and you hear all the technical exceptions and everybody's trying to prove and justify themselves. Well, Dad, you said I had to be in bed at 8.30, but it's actually, this clock is this now. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? And there go those lawyers again, right? I'm kind of looking over this way or that way. They're always trying to trap somebody. And Jesus comes into a confrontation with a lawyer. And let me just assure you, I'm glad we got a few good attorneys on our team. But most of the lawyers in that day were not on Jesus' team. And they're trying to trick him and they're trying to trap him. And so they're going to come to him and ask him a question about the law. But they don't realize that Jesus actually wrote the law. It's like trying to trick the guy who wrote the book on the book. Doesn't really work. But here we go. He doesn't know that. Ironically, here's the guy who's a lawyer standing before the king and creator of the entire world. Trying to come up with a question that might surprise him or catch him off guard. Good luck. The lawyer, verse 25, says this. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Boy, you've come to the right place. But are you really asking him that question? Jesus said to him, well, let me flip this back on you. What's written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and with all of your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He's right. That's it. That's the answer. He actually got it right. Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who just who is my neighbor now Jesus is about to do something and let me just warn you if you're ever talking to Jesus 
and he starts to do this, run. I'm just kidding. Don't run. You can't run. Jonah already showed us that. But here's the thing. Jesus is about to tell a story. That means somebody's about to get trapped. The person who set a trap is actually going to trap themselves. That's most often what happens. The lawyer is about to see in this story where his heart really is. And understanding the text correctly, we should do the same. Jesus replies to him, here, listen to this. You want to know who your neighbor is? Here's the answer. Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Stop. Just pause it right there. Um, Some people love to poke holes at the Bible. Oh, look, going down is south, but uh, he wasn't going south. You're right. He was going down, like physically down. Because as you saw on that slide, the temple is elevated. The Mediterranean Sea is sea level. And pretty much everything from Jerusalem is down. Whether you go north, east, south, or west, it's all down. (laughs) You always go down from Jerusalem. Look at all the old school churches and they build them elevated and there's hills or steps ascending into these old monumental churches because you go up to worship you come down to do daily life that's the way they thought of it so yeah he's going down but there's more to it than that he's like 2500 feet above sea level jericho's 800 feet below sea level so it's like 3000 some feet down now, down here is like you go to Arizona and the Grand Canyon, you get on your mule, and you wind down to the bottom of the canyon. You can imagine there's a lot of spots along the way where a burglar might just suck in their tummy and be ready to push you over the edge. Such was the case in this day, like Obi-Wan in the desert or whatever. There are burglars and bad guys everywhere, so much so that even outside the Bible, This guy named Josephus testifies to this very thing. Let me read this to you. I think you'll find it interesting, even though it's history. Here's what he said. He said, for this reason, when they're going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, they carry nothing with them when they travel into the remote parts, except their weapons for fear of thieves. So in other words, I'm not making a political statement or anything else. I'm just putting in cultural context. When you leave Jerusalem, take your hiking shoes and your handgun. Be ready to go. Leave your money at the door because you're going through a bad neighborhood and you can expect someone around the corner just waiting for you. This was the mindset of these people back then. These are not the good guys. These are the terrorists, remember? Samaritans, no good, bad. And so, what happens? Well, the second part of the verse tells us, He fell among the robbers, of course, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him for half dead. But now by chance, a priest was coming. Oh, good. There's hope. There's this really nice guy who does good things all the time. Maybe he'll help. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. What? Well, Levite was coming to the place and he saw him. Surely, I mean, he may not be a priest, but he assists the priest. And so this guy would help. Nope, same thing, exact same words. He passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, up, oh, story's over. Samaritan's going to stab him in the back and take whatever's left and push him over the edge. We're done. Oh, wait, 
A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion on him? A Samaritan? He went to him and bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Not only that, but he paid for the guy. The next day, he took out his wallet, his two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay. Which of these, Jesus says to the lawyer, now you answer my question, that thing about who is my neighbor? Which one of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Remember what the lawyer was trying to do? Justify himself. Narrow the scope. Hone it in on only the people he loves or likes. Surely not the Samaritans. And the priest, this lawyer, I called him a priest because they could be the same thing at the same time. This lawyer says to him, uh, one who showed him mercy? He's like, yeah, that's the one. You go and do the same. You know what the irony is here? In most cases, he's asking totally the wrong questions. They're all wrong. He's asking, who is my neighbor? That's not the right question. Jesus doesn't even care about that question. The real question is not who is my neighbor, but how do I be a good neighbor? Don't worry about who. Worry about you. See here, the the whole idea that you can narrow the scope or limit it is contradictory and antithetical to God's universal love. God loves everybody in all places at all times. We don't get the right to pick and choose. So the point here then is this. Through this story, Jesus is trying to tell this guy, your job, that command you just listed, is to reflect the heart of God. Show everybody what God's heart looks like. This is what you should do. Now, I could, in a sense, say, all right, all done. Sermon stops there. Pause, end. Here's the point. Be compassionate. Love others. But I think if I stop there, what's going to happen is this. We're still gigantically, gargantuanly removed from that story. How do we connect that to our daily lives? How do I apply this? Because, you know, I get up in the morning. I've come to work consistently for a long time. I've never seen anybody beat up and laying on the side of the road on Wackerly. Ever. Now, I could go home and it could be a different day. I don't know. That just doesn't happen if you're getting up before the sun rises and going home after it's down. It's not your normal course of life. So how do we apply this whole good neighbor thing to us today who are going 70 miles an hour down the highway rather than walking slowly along the path? The answer is this. There are three things in this text that I believe I can show you that the good Samaritan did that we can do. That are very simple, clear, and straightforward but will actually dynamically change how you live and make it possible for you to be a good neighbor every day of your life. 
Three things that reflect the heart of God that the Samaritan challenges us to do in this passage. And the first is this, is to be watchful. Be watchful. The first thing that this text calls us to do is be watchful. Augustine of Hippo says it like this. All people are to be loved equally. But since you cannot do good to all, you are to pay special attention to regard those who by time or place or circumstance are brought into closer connection with you. Look, there's no accidents. As you look at this story, you see what happens. This guy, this Samaritan, was just going about his normal business. He was on a trip, and this person was in his path. He's not necessarily going way out of his way to be a good Samaritan. This is just the person who is, he was in contact with that day. As we in our society have news and media and everything that shows us all the problems of the world, it can be a little bit overwhelming because we're like, whoa, how can I be a good Samaritan? There's a crisis going on over here and a tragedy over there. And I can't, I, I, I got to get up and be at work on time and go to the meeting and eat lunch and go home. And I, how do I do that? Release yourself to some extent of that burden. Not that we're not to go to the ends of the earth, but the point is this. In this passage, what you see is that the good Samaritan is a good Samaritan along his path as he journeys. And so the question that it brings up for us is this, is who has God put in your path? Who has God put in your path? Don't feel guilty for every single person everywhere, but specifically Be watchful, point number one, be watchful, be aware, be cognizant of who is actually there. And I know that's a challenge because, for example, you can be going to the, the, say, the the water bottle at work or whatever you call it, you know, the jug, the boom, 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 that thing. Taking a little break for a few minutes, step alarm just went off, Uh uh-oh, got to get up, get up, but you got to be back by a certain time and there's this pressure and I know I got to get this done And it just so happens that I'm coming across a path and someone else is there and I see them and, oh boy, if I really ask how they are, how long could we be here? It's not really part of the plan. I got stuff to do and only a limited amount of time to do it. How do I do this? Here's actually where Philippians 4.13 comes in. Anyone know that verse? Someone raise your hand if you know Philippians 4.13. There's this verse called Philippians 4.13. You'll see it on people's sleeves as they run the race. The verse 413 right there says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Hoorah. Here we go. I'm going to win this 5K. I'm going to run a half marathon. I can do it through Jesus. Is that what that verse is saying? Oh, it's funny. You go back to verse 11 and Paul begins to talk about that verse. And he says it like this. He says, not that I'm speaking of need for I've learned in whatever situation I'm in, I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low, to lose. I know how to abound, to win. In every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Listen to those words, abundance and need. I feel like I'm always in need of more time. You ever feel like you have an abundant amount of time? Here's where that verse comes in. Not just because we think we have unlimited infinite amount of time to reach out to whoever but in that moment we can remind ourselves that yes god is here with me and i can take a break i can wait i can ask and i can really listen 
because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So that when I go back to my desk, and instead of having one hour to get it done, and I only have 30 minutes to get it done, maybe, just maybe, God will honor that and help me to work twice as fast as I normally do and be much more efficient and actually turn in some really good work. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ, and I'm trying to honor him and follow his direction, and he put this person in my path, so I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to be watchful. I think that's what this text is first calling us to do, is just to be watchful. Be aware. Notice who is in your path. We at Midland Free want to help you do that, and so you've heard it mentioned today, and you'll hear it mentioned some more. We've actually put some things in your path. Like if you're going this way, we're hoping that you maybe won't trip over the table, but you'll at least notice there are a number of ministries out here. And it may be that there is no homeless person whatsoever in your path, but we know they're out there and we know they have needs. And so we know we want to reach out to them, but how? Is $10 and driving by enough? No, of course they need, you know, commitment and long-term transition plans and expertise and mental health and all this other stuff that we don't have. And so what do we do? We support these local ministries and they can come alongside and partner with people that need more than what we can give. And it's a good thing. And so we put them out here in front of you in your past so that you can examine them, you can pray for them and you can decide if any of those fit what God is calling you to do. Notice in this text specifically, the good Samaritan He's being watchful, but he's also willing to pay, right? He shells it out because he pays for all this guy's medical bills. And then he says, open tab, charge anything after that to me. He's really getting vulnerable and taking risk here because this innkeeper could take advantage of him. It's scary when you reach out financially, isn't it? You don't always know what you're given to and you're hoping that it all works well and everything's transparent and accountable and good. That's what we believe these ministries are. And that's why we at Midland Free, in just a few moments after this sermon, will actually pass a plate. Not just because we want to turn on the lights, or not just because we want to pay the bills, but because we want to be like the Good Samaritan and partner with God for whoever's in our path. And these ministries here have been put specifically in our way. We're thankful that they're not just do-gooders, but they are actually gospel witness, intentional Biblical ministry. So, for example, we support. When you give to Midland Free, listen to this. This is who you support. You support Fostering Hope, which is the umbrella for Royal Family Kids Camp, for the um, foster children and people who have major family troubles, the Teen Reach Adventure Camp, same, same group, just different age, the Life Clinic here in town that you heard about last week, Young Life, You support a missionary who is here every week in your path whose name is Mike Peterson. Exactly right. We have someone who is a goal local sponsored ministry who goes out to the colleges and gets in their space and tries to lead those people to Christ. He's here every week and you can talk to him. Hi, Mike. There you go. Guy with the beard. He likes coffee. Lots of coffee. All right. Michigan abolitionists, adopted areas of North Midland and Grove Park, the labor of love, doulas, open door, which you hear from Bob Marsh, Spring Hill, the forgotten man ministry, unallocated and local church planting. We have all kinds of things that we intentionally support because they're part of our community and we want to be loving our neighbors and the nations. 
There's lots and lots of ways you can be watchful. But first of all, just be watchful for what's in your path. There's things in your path here at church. There's things in your path each day. God is putting them there and calling you to them. What is in your path? First of all, be watchful. Second of all, be flexible. Here's a hard one for me. This is a really hard one because when I see this one, it's one thing to be flexible, but it's another thing when you know your constraints, you know your limitations, and you know your own personal stuff. So you're like, okay, this person's about to unload. Do I really have the emotional capacity to handle one more story? I don't know. There's a lot of stuff going on out there, and I listen to a good amount of it most weeks, and take more time to hear more is a bit of a stretch that I don't always want to do. And then all of a sudden, Philippians 4.13 comes back to me and says, wait, you can do all things through Christ, even when you're low in your emotional tank. Even when you abound, even when you lack. Even then, God will supply the need and refill you. So yes, take that extra time and listen to that story. Even though it's heavy, help them, hold them up, and carry their burden. Be flexible. Be flexible. What am I afraid of? I'm afraid of the emotional impact. I'm afraid of the relational impact. What if I have to say no? <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I, no. I don't really want to have to say no. So sometimes it's kind of easier to avoid it than to be in a spot where you might have to say no. If you're going to say no, then you could make somebody mad. Or, you know, they could misrepresent you to someone else or all kinds of other stuff. And it's not really fun. Who wants to say no? But I have to trust the Lord that by grace through faith, I can do all things through Christ. Even say no. By the way, it may be the case. Saying no is the single most godly thing you can do. I'm not just talking to sin. I'm talking about good stuff that crowds out the best stuff. One of the reasons we can't be a good neighbor, we're not watchful, is we're too busy. We're focused on the future because we got so much going on. We can't look to the left or the right. We have no margin or space in our life. And as a result, it's impossible for us to be a good neighbor. We haven't built that in. This morning, as you ask what God will call you to do, I challenge you to be watchful, to look inside yourself and see, you know, hey, where do I need to say no? Where do I need to be disciplined? Where do I need to be intentional? Where do I re- need to refocus my efforts and not be afraid? The emotional impact, the time impact, or anything else. Here's one more idol I want to tear down this morning, is if, I, if I can, on this. And it's that of quality control or excellence. And let me be clear. Our God is perfect and everything he does is just right. So I'm not ta- saying be a slob or do a half-done do- half job. No. But let me say this, in Midland, we are committed to excellence, and a lot of us do stuff really, really well. And sometimes we refuse to get into something because we're afraid we won't do a good enough job of it. It may not meet up to our standards, or we may not feel good about it because we want it to be perfect. But you know what? That's okay. Here's a story about a starfish. Um, Has anyone heard this story, the story of the starfish? Okay, put your hands down and pretend you haven't. Just laugh at the right point, okay? Got it? All right. There's this little boy on the beach, and he sees like t- thousands of starfish. 
And he decides that he's going to go and pick them up and start throwing them back into the ocean because he doesn't want them to drown or die. The tide was in, and he's going to help. And some old curmudgeon comes along, says, what are you doing, wasting time? Do you see the beach? Look at how many starfish are there. The birds have to eat something. Why bother? Let them go. Do something else. Little boy reaches over. Guy's like, look, nobody cares. Picks up starfish, throws it back, and he says, that one cared. Laugh. Thank you. Good. Here's the point. You know, quality control. We live in Midland. It's not always going to be perfect. We'd like it to be really, really good. But sometimes there's only so much we can do, and for that little bit, it's worth it. It's not, can I do it perfect or can I do it all? But what can I do? That's the question. Be watchful. There's something coming your way that you can do. But if you're open to it, here's an opportunity for you. How do we show God's heart? Well, we have to be watchful. We have to be flexible. And finally, we have to be faithful. We have to be faithful. Now, let me show you what I mean by that. Start of this verse, or start of this chapter starts out. And teacher, uh, the lawyer says to the teacher, to Jesus, he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Actually, that's the right question. It's not who is my neighbor, but it's, it's right there. There's the start. And Jesus leads him down the path and he says, you know what? What do you think? What's written in the law? And he gives the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And Jesus is like, you're right. And at that point, you know what his answer should have been? But I can't. I can't love God perfectly. I can't love my neighbor perfectly. I can't do it all. So what do I do, Lord? Help. Instead, he tries to justify himself and narrow it down. But the real point of this story is to say, look, the right question is not who is my neighbor? right question is like who is jesus when i point my neighbor to him when i pursue that path all of a sudden i find something that i can rest in that is successful and perfect every single time even when i'm not when i look at the law it condemns me but when i look at christ he forgives me you want to know how you can be a good neighbor The single most loving thing you can do anywhere at any time is to point someone to Jesus. There is nothing more loving you can do than that. We need to be watchful. We need to be flexible and faithful. But ultimately, we need to be faithful. And by faithful, I don't mean like we need to be perfect every time and we need to do everything. But by faithful, I I mean we need to be Full of faith in our Savior, Jesus. Only he gets it right every time. He's our only hope. If I start the day and I'm like, okay, today I'm going to be a good dad. I'm going to do everything right. And I go into a situation, I fail. How do I feel? I'm frustrated the rest of the day. I'm upset at myself. I fell short. I didn't get it right. But if I go into the day and I say, look, I want to be a good dad, but I'm not. But I have a loving Heavenly Father who is. He is faithful and perfect every time. So I'm going to try my best 
But when I drop the ball, he's going to love me even though. Then I go in carefree, like whoop-de-doo, here we go. That's a different spot. And that's where I want to be. Faithful. Not perfect, but full of faith. Full of faith in him who is perfect. This is how to be a good neighbor. I don't expect you're going to see anyone necessarily lying on the side of the road today. But I do have a feeling that sometime this week, God is going to put someone in your path. My call and question to you is this. How can you reflect God's heart to them? Be watchful, be flexible, and be faithful. The question for us is not who is my neighbor, but how do I be a good neighbor? Father, we thank you for your only son, Jesus, who is perfect in every way. Even when I'm not, Lord, and that's a lot. I just ask God that as we continue to worship you today, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear where we can be a part of your plan. Thank you that we can point people to you, that there's a lot of good organizations and opportunities for us to do so. Please help us to be intentional and disciplined about creating margin in our lives. Lord, we need you. We want you. We desire you. You're perfect and you're good. And we just pray, God, that through what's said and sung here today, we'll bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.